Mississippi. Welcome to episode 43 of the Deep South Donner podcast. This talk is called The Fourth Messenger, and I thought it was appropriate to share with you. This was previously recorded, but I thought it was appropriate to share in celebration of Buddha Day this year, or Waisak. The only um, other announcement that I want to share with you at this time is that Lisa Ernst of One Dharma Nashville has a retreat through Heartwood Refuge coming up at the end of June. She has decided out of caution and compassion to shift it to an online retreat and um, those of us who have done some short or longer online retreats are finding that these can be very powerful in their own way. Um, I have done many retreats with Lisa um, when she was facilitating, and I highly recommend that you check it out. So if you go to the heartwoodrefuge.org website, you can get information on her retreat in in June and how to to join. And then uh, I'm actually recording this podcast from the road. Even beyond COVID, life remains uncertain for all of us, the normal ways that life is uncertain. So on the road with some family members, taking care of um, loved ones and enjoying being with loved ones. So I'll keep this short and um, say that I am grateful for your practice and would love to hear from you if you want to drop us uh, a, a voice message with any questions, comments, or topics of discussion you would like to hear at anchor.fm slash deepsouthdharma. And of course, if you want to join us um, for either one of our practice opportunities, you can pick up the links for that at our website, deepsouthdharma.org. And now we'll turn our attention to the fourth messenger. So the topic I uh, chose tonight, I'm calling the fourth sign. I also could have called it the fourth messenger. Um, So this is based uh, partly on, there's sort of a a mythical story about the Buddha, but then there's also actually some words of his that are relevant to this. So the, um, the mythical version first is that, um, is that, having been raised in the palaces and been uh, sort of protected from from really the truth of how things are. Protected from um, from the awareness of suffering in the world. And I want to pull up a um, actually something that I a quote of his from um, that I thought was really sharp the way that it was listed. Um, He said, according to this legend, um, Siddhartha had been confined to his palace by his father, who feared he'd become an ascetic if he came into contact with sufferings of life. This was supposedly according to a prediction. 
um, that the story is that, and again, this is part of the sort of the folk tales, Stranger Things, but the story is that, um, that, um, that it was said of the Buddha when he was an infant that he would either grow up to be a great king, which is what his father wanted, um, or a, a great ascetic. And, um, and the, the sense of, his, his, the king says, uh, was determined that his son should be a great king, confined the prince within the palace, and surrounded him with earthly pleasures and luxury, thereby concealing the realities of life that might encourage him to renounce these pleasures and become an ascetic. So, you know, this actually, this line feels very relevant um, to, you know, those of us who live with a, a fair amount of privilege in this world. We are com confined within uh, sort of a, a palace of earthly pleasures and luxury concealing the realities of life that might encourage us to renounce these pleasures or to question how they come about, who, who's, who's paying for this, right? Who is suffering so that we can have this luxury, that sort of thing. And, um, but more importantly, or you know, even bigger picture than that is the, uh, is, is concealing the fact that they they don't work, you know, or they only work for so long. So the, the, when we talk about the fourth sign, the story is that the Buddha, possibly just because it was part of who he really was, in awakening the time came, he had uh, entrusted, uh, confided in one of his servants to take him outside of the palace. And there's different versions of the story, some are that on three separate occasions, or four separate occasions he saw these signs. Some versions of the story have it all happening in one day. Um, but, the, but either way, the story is that first he saw um, an aged person, which was the first time he had seen that. His, uh, apparently, uh, <laughs> much like Hollywood or something, his dad made sure he didn't see very many aged people. <laughs> and um, and uh, then the set, that was one sign. Um, and he questioned his servant about, you know, sort of like, what's, what's with that guy? You know, why does he look like that? And he said, well, he's, you know, aging. That's going to happen for all of us. And this was a shock for him. Um, and then the second sign was that he saw someone who was ill, someone who was quite ill, it sounds like. And according to the story, it's, you know, somebody lying by the side of the road and um, um, in his own excrement, in his own filth, and people sort of lifting him out of that and again question his servant about that and and Shana his servant C H A N N A Chanya said, Well that you know, he's he's sick, you know, everybody gets sick at some point. Nobody nobody escapes that. And um, in you know, in human form. And um, the third sign was then seeing um, the, the remains of a person who had died and being informed that that was his fate eventually. And then the fourth sign was seeing an ascetic in his yellow robes. 
and ask and seeing something about that person's countenance that seemed peaceful, that seemed uh, to have found something beyond uh, all of this, and, um, and and sort of being and asking questions about that, and, and her servant saying, you know, well that's that is someone who basically has made it his business in life to seek for what does not die, what's un, you know what's not born, what's not what doesn't die, and so <laughs> he became interested in that. <laughs> so um, now. There also, there's also um, a version of the story in which he went back to the palace and tried to distract himself for a while longer. In fact, there was, um, in this version, sort of he was, you know, entertained for an evening with all of these dancing girls. It was, you know, I don't know, I don't know if in this version he sort of went back to complaining to his dad about what he saw. Um, so his dad produced a big show to sort of distract him or, or if it was a matter of him trying to distract himself. Um, but then sort of he had sort of this morning after experience with that. Woke up and all of these people that looked so beautiful the night before and all of their dancing and entertaining and all of that. Uh, he wakes up and looks around, you know, seeing people in disarray, seeing people passed out, seeing, you know, just, just sort of that morning after a drunken debacle and made his decision to go. Um, so it's very much, you know, it just was such a, a experience for him. Uh, according to the story, he was about 29 this, when he went forth um, from home. And the story, uh, it just really sort of illustrates how he just came to a place of like, okay, well, I see where this goes. Um, now, that is um, sort of the folk tale around this, but he actually does speak of sort of his process, and this isn't a long uh, reading, but I am going to, um, to share it here. He says, before my enlightenment, while I was still just an unenlightened bodhisattva, I clearly saw, as it actually is with proper wisdom, how sensual pleasures provide little gratification, much suffering, and much despair, and how great is the danger in them. But as long as I still did not attain to the rapture and pleasure that are apart from sensual pleasures, apart from unwholesome states, or to something more peaceful than that, I recognized that I could still be attracted to sensual pleasures. But when I saw it with proper wisdom, how sensual pleasures provide little gratification, much suffering and much despair, how great is their danger, and I attained to the rapture and pleasure that are apart from sensual pleasures, apart from unwholesome states, or to something more peaceful than that, I recognized that I was no longer attracted to sensual pleasures. So what stands out to me about this, and even uh, in the folktale, is this idea that, yes, so he saw these, the first three signs which troubled him a great deal, but probably that by, by itself would not have helped him to make the shift that he did. But the fact that he saw the practitioner, the person that had sort of given himself to what was called the holy life, and the fact that that person's countenance looked joyful. 
Um, that, you know, probably if that guy looked as miserable as the first three that he saw, he might have just despaired. It might have just, you know, it would have been a, it, it just, it would have been, you know, sort of heartrending, but it wouldn't have offered him a direction to go in. And, um, you know, I think about this sometimes. Um, uh, most of you know uh, that I spent 11 years working in residential treatment settings, and now I'm in private practice full-time um, as far in that line of work. And um, one of the things that really strikes me uh, is, especially once I started sitting retreats and doing things like that, is how much the experience of treatment <laughs> is sort of our modern-day replacement for offering somebody the, the option of of a, of a spiritual life in a different setting. Um, you know, you go into, you know, these treatment centers and there's all sorts of things people do that, they, that are suggested when we go on retreat, like giving up your phone for the time that you're there, setting that aside. Um, you sort of make that place your community. You take on chores and, and you learn a lot about yourself from your relationship to those chores and from your relationship to the other people in the setting and then you're also in this scenario where whether it's that you're sitting and meditating or whether it's some combination of meditation and you know discussion with other people you're sort of having this these just ex, uh, rather extreme increases in awareness um, in a relatively short period of time awareness of the state of one's own mind the state of, oh, so this is what I'm like when I can't distract myself from my phone, you know, with my phone, or this is what I'm like when I can't, you know, um, when I can't immediately hit that pleasure button to turn on uh, a song or a television or something anytime that there's a little bit of something unpleasant arising. Um, and, you know, the, um, so th I think this is why traditionally in Buddhist culture, the, the, and of course, as Buddhism is morphed in different cultures into you know, some more sort of religious forms of Buddhism than others, but there's sort of this, uh, but there is sort of this underlying truth, I think, to this, that there is, uh, that it is auspicious, that there is some blessing involved upon seeing a monastic. Uh, just that reminder being, you know, it's sort of like, I mean, the gross way to say it would be it's like considered good luck, right? Or considered good karma or uh, to even just lay eyes on a person in robes. And, um, and so, you know, this is um, just because even if it, even if we're completely unfamiliar um, with that type of lifestyle, it's just that little chink in the armor that just reminds us, oh, there is a different way to live, right? And maybe it's not part of our authentic path to go do that, but even just that reminder of there is another way to live really sort of sets us up to examine, to examine how we're living and to um, decide, you know, what it is that we want to give our life to, um, and or how we want to interact with that, and so, you know, in this really 
the Buddha set up the Sangha, this sort of symbiotic um, uh, situation where monks and nuns and laymen and laywomen were dependent on each other. Um, and so, uh, and, and all of the bazillions of rules that developed for the monks wasn't so much about, oh, you know, trying to be a special kind of person. It was to, every time one of his monks took advantage of lay people in some way, he had to make a new rule. Like, the, you know, that this is not about us, you know, showing up at somebody's house and they have to kill the best calf they have so that we can eat, you know, so then you guys just don't eat meat anymore, you know, or whatever. I mean, you know, it's that kind of thing, or you just eat what people give you. You're not allowed to let somebody go or to encourage somebody to go kill one of their animals and feed you, you know, um, that kind of thing. And so, but for, so, so for lay people, that's, that is why, you know, part of, like when this group makes donations each week, you know, we have a very reasonable rent here. And the, the reason for supporting these, um, that Heartwood Refuge, you know, it's, it's interesting because it is actually a monastery. Now, it's, that's not in the name of it. It's Heartwood Refuge and Retreat Center. Um, but for, there are some monastics that, that live there, and, and there are some lay people who live there also. Um, but it was interesting because I was looking up something else for somebody, and I ran across Heartwood in a list of monasteries in North America. And I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, I just sort of somehow, I, you know, it's like, yes, I know monks and nuns live there, but I hadn't thought of it as a monastery because that's not what they call themselves. So part of that is about, I think, you know, there's that they really want to make it clear that this is a place for everyone, right? So the monks and nuns that choose to live there for a time, they know what that's about but also I think calling it a refuge and retreat center helps those of us who are growing up in a culture that in some ways is disadvantaged. And so it's like in our culture we have such extremes of we're so privileged in so many ways as far as just the availability of food, shelter, clothing, entertainments, that sort of thing, and yet we are considered to be so disadvantaged in the spiritual life you know, that all kinds of monasteries across this globe are happy to send us books for free on the Dharma, <laughs> right? The richest country, you know, but, but just because there's sort of that sense of um, that like Siddhartha, and I really didn't understand this until I was doing my preparation for this talk tonight, and that clicked into place. The reason for that is it's, it's almost, it's out of compassion that, these, some of these places across the world that, that we would sort of consider much less fortunate have great compassion for us because like Siddhartha, we are trapped in our palace behind this wall of pleasures and things that hide from us what life can really be like. Now, of course, those of us lay people who, um, who end up you know, with enough interest in what life is really like that we show up to things like this, you know, and come together and practice meditation and um, gather. Usually that's because we have had some sort of uh, divine messenger of our own, right? The, our own personal sighting of aging, sickness, death, or, or some other form of sorrow and lamentation that is, that was beyond us, that was, that 
to that, that, that moment of recognizing, oh, I'm not exempt from this, right? I can't grow up and be anything I want, right? I can grow up and be a lot of things, you know, but there, I do have limitations like people from other parts of the world. Um, so, you know, I can't have this body respond the way I want it to. I can't have other people respond the way I want them to. I can't have life do what I want it to do. Um, and yet, there is, the reason we come around is because that's not the end of that story. You know, I remember, uh, I remember the, uh, one of my favorite doctors that worked at, at one of the places I worked was talking about a, a client of ours that was living with us, or living there at the time, and um, um, they were really, they had, they had come into contact with the first noble truth and was like, yeah, that's right, life sucks, you know, and just was really relishing just the validation, you know, and, <laughs> and uh, the doctor was saying, he said, and I kind of wanted to say to him, but wait, there's more, <laughs> you know, it's like, he said, but I didn't want to take it away from him because, you know, because that was the first, because that was the first place he had been where somebody had acknowledged, yeah, no, you're right, it sucks, really. And, um, you know, he, again, and he was very much a person that had grown up in a situation of so much wounding, but so much privilege and money and people being shielded from the consequences of their actions because their money could buy them out of their consequences that they would, you know, he just got in very bad shape emotionally before seeking, seeking an answer. So, and the thing was is that he'd been surrounded by people, you know, that when he would try to tell them how life sucks, they would say, oh, you know, don't be ridiculous, right? You know, look how lucky you are. Um, and so, but, but the fact is is that we wouldn't be here, um, we wouldn't be developing this path if the first noble truth were the only truth. Um, and the fact is is that Yes, there is so much that uh, is truly painful and sorrowful about this existence, and um, there is a way that we can, a path we can cultivate and, and a way that we can relate to things, A, sometimes just to make life suck less, you know, and some of that has to do with just coming together with other people that are also willing to tell the truth about, yeah, it can be really disappointing sometimes, um, that sometimes it appears that even when you do everything right, when there's no you know, visible reason for things not to go your way, sometimes they just don't. Um, and, and yet, um, that that's okay too, because there is this path we can cultivate that is about more than that, going beyond whether life turns out our way or not. And, um, and in that um, is we can find significant relief and significant joy and release um, whether, we, whether we take on the, the um, you know, we may not take on robes and, and move into a monastery and all of that, but we definitely can take that, uh, take up that path um, and be part of that process. And um, if, 
if being in robes is not part of our path, that we can definitely be part of what makes that available in this world so that people don't have to, you know, almost die and then to go into a, you know, a medical setting to try to, to come into contact with something that is truthful. Um, so I want to stop there and um, just as maybe as um, people discuss and share, you know, uh, share, you know, as much or as little as you like about sort of your own divine messengers, right? Sort of the things that um, for you um, brought, brought you to that place of looking for something more out of life that brought you into the Dharma and, um, and any other, any other um, sidebars or topics that this brings up for you. I would love to hear it. Thank you. Let's just give ourselves a minute to let that settle. I am really grateful for my connection to you, a person who would listen to a podcast about the Dharma. If you know others who might value this podcast, please do share it with them. And if you would like to be involved in the financial support of this podcast, you can do that for just 99 cents a month at anchor.fm slash deepsouthdharma. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Deep South Dharma Podcast. We hope you'll feel welcome to share this with anyone you think would find it useful. And as always, feel free to message us your feedback, questions, or topics of interest. Until we meet again, take good care of this body, mind, and heart.